I want to see, now let's see, hopefully this will work. And I, if I remember correctly, the, the volume on this is, is not great, so if... This young minister has been accused of child sexual abuse. He's an outstanding member of the community, widely respected and well-liked. He has no criminal record of any sort. Is he guilty? You decide. I was a youth minister, an assistant minister. Um, it was a rather small congregation for our community, around 200 to 300 people, at best 300. And um, I, I feel the needs of an, of an assistant pastor, uh, an associate minister, a deacon, uh, and the highest being elder pastor, uh, and working with the, with the youth of the congregation. He was a kid at church, yeah. underprivileged. He came in with a group of, uh, of other children, and I reached out and tried to help him as no one else would. And just like the kids that normally, uh, that normally are underprivileged, they try to take advantage of people who, who, who help them. Uh, obviously, he has a lot of disturbances, mental problems. I think he, if you'll look in his records, he was even uh, in a mental institution for three years before, uh, before uh, coming to church, He's, uh, before being in the boys' home. He has a criminal record anyway. Yes, I think ministers are victimized by false reports. The, they have a very sensitive job. Um, they are out there working with people constantly. On a, they're alone, many times unsupervised. Uh, the only person uh, with them, of course, would be the minister and the child or the minister and the uh, accusing victim, if you will. Uh, so who's to, who's to say that the minister didn't do it? Most, most 20... 80% of the time, I would say, uh, the victim is believed more than the minister. And it's because of all the heightened, uh, heightened uh, hoopla over victims and all that stuff. It's ridiculous. Uh, ministers uh, too much are, are victimized themselves for their kind deeds. People want to get money out of them uh, if they're a little bit successful. Then their entire reputation is shot. They go back into the ministry and no one may, they may say they trust them, but they're never totally trusted again. Their entire uh, education, work, whatever they've gone through for years has gone down the drain. Never to be fully restored, never to be fully recapacitated as, as uh, what was before. It's, it's a shame. It's extremely discouraging. I have, uh, I have spent two years in seminary. I'm the youngest... Uh, Deacon of the Methodist Church in the in, in the state, and it's absolutely all of that prior effort and work, my entire life dream, the hopes of my parents, is now being questioned. I only hope God deals mercifully with them. What's the truth? Was he falsely accused, as he claims? I had. Uh, 53 hands-on definite victims, uh, and there are uh, 40, uh, 42 other ones that can be questioned as far as uh, age and so forth is concerned. Uh, they, I have 53 minor victims. There's been a tremendous increase in child sexual abuse reports in the last... thoughts any any reaction or thoughts from you as you watch this this person actually this not to scare you or anything but but this interview was this guy's serving time in Alabama 
Um, but any thoughts when you watch this? Look like a typical offender that you might think uh, would be lurking in your churches? Come on, we're gonna. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna start treating you guys like my class. I'm gonna start calling on people. Ah, now see, now I won't call on you for a little while. Go ahead. Yeah. How about what, before he confesses? I mean, what are you? Uh, and I probably set this up. So you're probably thinking, oh, why is he playing this? And this guy's probably gonna. He's probably an offender. But but as he's talking earlier, I mean, doesn't he sound like somebody who has maybe perhaps suffered from being falsely accused? And if you don't catch yourself. Maybe even at the beginning, you start feeling like, maybe a little sorry for him. If this guy's been falsely accused, oh my goodness. Um, or at least you might be thinking like, as he starts speaking about the, the dangers of being falsely accused and what it does and how it destroys your life. He's been to seminary and all of those things. And uh, you, you know, you, you see the, the picture he begins to paint. And a lot of folks really em- end up embracing that type of picture and go, wow. And then when son- suddenly... It comes out that that person is an offender. It's really hard because they've created such a narrative. It's really hard for a lot of people to really acknowledge that this person actually has done this. Plus, it doesn't, doesn't really fit oftentimes the stereotype that we have so often convinced ourselves or learned from other people or listened from other people about sex offenders. I was telling somebody the other day, uh, you know, it's, it's, I may have said this last night, it's, it's not the creepy guy at the party you got to worry about sitting in the corner. It's the one hosting the party. <laughs> we need to understand that because so oftentimes when we think of, you know, years ago, remember they had the, the slogan, the campaign, stranger danger. Okay. And, and if, sure. I mean, the, the creepy guy at the park that's lurking around, uh, watching kids. Yes. Your kids need to stay away from that person. Okay. Sure. There is, there is stranger danger, but as we're going to learn this morning, um, the, the biggest danger is not with strangers. It's with family members. It's with acquaintances. And it's with people, uh, you know, volunteer leaders and, and people that your, your children and that you know. And we need to understand as we jump into this session this morning talking about offenders, we need to begin really to help shift our understanding. At least some of you need to shift your understanding and perspective of, of who offenders are. I've prosecuted hundreds, if not thousands, of sexual offenders, and very few of them were the stranger offenders. Very few of them were the creepy guys in the park. There were some. Most of the ones that I prosecuted were family members, which are really difficult cases to prosecute because of the dynamics, um, or acquaintances. The, the, uh, the man who befriends the single mom in church, the mom who's struggling just to make ends meet, uh, she's got two, three kids, uh, has a you know difficult last few years, and this person enters her, into her life and just begins in church, nice Christian man, just wanting to help her out because she sees, he notices that she's struggling. The next thing you know, he's, he's helping, you know, pick up the kids from school if necessary. Uh, doing all of these things again, uh, and sometimes even moving towards having a relationship with the mom. Oftentimes in order to access the, ch- the children. And then once they access the children and the child, if a child ever comes forward, I remember a case very clearly where a uh, very similar type of situation and a child came forward to tell her mother and her mother refused to believe her. And as, as horrific as that is, the thought process with mom, I'm sure, was, 
I finally begin to, to get life back together. We've got this guy who's helping bring income. We've, he's gotten us a nice place to stay. I don't have to worry about getting kicked out of our house any, uh, our rental house anymore. Life is finally stable. How dare you, daughter, ruin that? And it was tragic. And a month later, the, the daughter came back to my office and said, uh, it didn't happen. And I did what I could to try to, to help, help her see that that's not, that's not the answer either. And she wouldn't change her mind. Um, and so, you know, you think about that and, and realize, wow, that the long-term implications of what just happened there um, are, are really tragic. I uh, have no idea where that person is today. So I wanted to just get this session started with that video because I think it just, again, I want us to be focused on the fact that when we're talking about sex offenders here, quite frankly, anybody can be a sex offender. I mean, that's how you should be. I don't, maybe I'm a little bit jaded, but I don't trust anybody except for my wife, 100%. I don't trust anybody. Now, I'm not paranoid, but I don't trust anybody. Why? Because I've seen sex offenders come in all shapes, sizes, genders. It, it doesn't matter. And so for me to hear somebody go, oh, that, no, there's no way that person could be one because of this. I've seen it. As a prosecutor, handling hundreds of these cases, I've seen the sex offender that has those same type of characteristics. And so that doesn't make me feel comfortable when, uh, or give me peace when somebody says, no, that, that, that's just not possible. Um, it's what we want to believe more than what we should believe. So let's, talk, uh, let, let's do a little bit of background. Let's talk about the prevalence of child abuse in the United States. Uh, One million children confirm cases of abuse uh, or neglect each year. Last year was 770,000. Now, this is more than just child sexual abuse, child abuse as well. Now, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about child sexual abuse. But let me tell you this. Child abuse, child physical abuse, child emotional abuse, even child spiritual abuse is, is extremely prevalent in today's church. When I, when I talk about physical abuse, oftentimes in, um, in Christian circles, I get sometimes resistance. Because a lot of times Christians want to immediately go to, oh, you get spanking? And I say, well, we can have that conversation. But, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about physical abuse that goes on. And there's a lot of it. But I just want to, today I want to focus primarily on, on child sexual abuse, which obviously is, is way too prevalent. 2,000 uh, children in 2010, um, no, this, excuse me, in 2006, died because of abuse in this country. Uh, one out of five girls, one out of seven boys uh, will be sexually abused by their 18th birthday. That figure, depending on the study that you look at, some have one out of four, one out of six. Um, that's significant. Uh, and we'll talk about why that's significant uh, in the church in just a minute. One out of seven children from ages two to 17 are abused. And keep in mind, this is based on whatever data we can collect. I mean, my my guess is, after the, the work I've done on this, is that these figures are low. Because people, this is one of the most underreported offenses that exist. And so we're collecting data based upon reports, and it's going to be higher than that in reality. 20% of children between 10 and 17 have been solicited online. That's a whole other discussion one day we can have is, is, the, is the online world and, and the dangers that that has uh, created for our children. Uh, one, uh, over one million runaway, or, or what we call thrown away children. Um, 241,000 children at risk of being prostituted. Um, 
the, the rate of child abuse is, is 10 times the rate of cancer and 75 times the rate of child uh, of pediatric cancer. Uh, again, these are significant numbers. And I say, I present all this to you not to, you know, not to try to stir up your emotions. I just, I think we need to understand the, the facts. And that's why we have studies listed after just about each of these uh, to let you know that these aren't just numbers I'm, uh, we're pulling out of thin air. These are, these are numbers that are based on research. And it's really important. When you have conversations with people about this topic, it's really important. So many people will come up with anecdotal evidence. So I had somebody come up to me last year after a presentation and say, well, I think, I think that uh, you know, false reports are just uh, way too prevalent, and, and I, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't agree with it. And I said, well, what's, what are you basing your statement on? Again, I put my lawyer mode on it. What are you basing your statement that false reports are way too prevalent? Well, I had an uncle that was falsely reported. It just destroyed his life and, and um, his family and just awful. So I, I see the harm it's done. I was like, okay. I said, let me ask you a question. Why do you say that he was falsely reported, uh, falsely accused? Well, because the state didn't prosecute. Okay. Is that all that it's based on? Yes. Okay. Well, let me tell you as a prosecutor that there were many, many, many reasons why I, I sometimes couldn't prosecute a case and it had nothing to do with whether or not that individual was innocent or not. I said, but let's just take for, let's take your argument as truth. Let's assume that he was innocent. I said, that's one situation you've raised with me. What other evidence do you have? Well, I don't have any. Well, okay, that's anecdotal evidence. That's, that's, that's important, and that's definitely personal to people. But when you're talking to folks, learn, you know, even if you just have this information, uh, to provide actually objective research. That's, that's what these conversations need to be based on. When we do training, that's what it needs to be based on, not just anecdotal evidence, but what does the objective research state? Um, because that's what, how we should be, in, should be using to develop our policies and the trainings in our churches and not just uh, anecdotal. Because anecdotal evidence gets you all over the map. I mean, it depends who you're talking to. Uh, we want to be much more consistent. $100 billion annually on child abuse, child neglect issues in this country. Um, this is a financial issue. I did a presentation at the medical school at Liberty uh, about a month ago talking about, um, and we won't have time to talk about it today, but about the ACE studies, which is a really fascinating uh, area um, because what they're finding is that childhood trauma impacts long-term in so many more ways than we can imagine. And what they did years ago is they developed a test where if you experience, and they defined different, like 10 areas of t- childhood trauma, and if you scored a one, your rate of you know, addiction, obesity, heart disease went up a little bit. When you got to three or four on the ACE study, it shot up, I mean, tenfold. It's really amazing. And so one of the things I was trying to teach and, and talk to, uh, to future doctors is this is really helpful information for you as a physician to understand where, if these people have experienced childhood trauma, to help explain perhaps the situation that they're dealing with. But from a financial standpoint, yeah, I mean, we spend, think of all the money that is spent. And this money shouldn't be the driving force, obviously. But think of all the money that is spent every year on all those things, all those things, heart disease, cancer, uh, addiction. And so much of it can be traced back to, not exclusively, but can be traced back to some type of uh, adverse childhood experience. Um, so to know about that is, uh, is really critical and to say, okay, what can we do even in a churches? The, the more you can be vigilant in reducing and protecting children from childhood trauma, you have no clue the benefit 
and the blessing that you are contributing to in later in life. That all of these ills that I've just talked about, they have a far less likelihood of experiencing because their church was vigilant in protecting them. You imagine if the church became the safest places for children. Not only would that protect them from being abused, but you know what? And I know this sounds sort of wacky, but maybe, maybe it actually minimizes their chances of getting heart disease or cancer. Church becomes really, literally, the safest place for people. Um, and that's what I hope and pray to, to see. Uh, here's just a map. Uh, we won't, it's probably hard to see, but, uh, but this is a map of, of uh, registered sex offenders uh, in the United States. Um, and it's uh, per 100,000. And so if you, uh, if you live in, I think I was looking at this the other day, one of the highest states is, uh, is uh, Michigan, uh, 41 per 100,000. Uh, Alabama, we've got 13. You're pretty, uh, you're pretty low there. Are you? my, my state, Virginia, or even Florida... Florida, I think, may be higher than Michigan. I think that looks like a 62. That's scary. Uh, anyway, but these are, these are registered sex offenders. These are people who were reported and were actually charged and convicted and registered. Now, let me tell you, as we'll talk about this uh, as we move along here, um, <laughs> there are way more offenders out there that have never been caught. Way more. Uh, I might have this uh, study listed here somewhere on these slides, but uh, there was one study that said with high-risk offenders, by the time they get caught, they've uh, sexually victimized anywhere from 20 to 150 victims. That's significant. That tells you that there are lots of offenders out there who've never been caught. That tells you that background checks are helpful, but not that helpful, uh, because there's a stronger likelihood that, that that offender's never been caught. Um, so these are, these are pretty striking numbers. Uh, I said last night, the Department of Justice has reported that there's one, uh, there's a sex offender every square mile uh, in this country. Um, and again, not designed to scare you. It's just designed to help open our eyes to the prevalence of this. Um, those of you who have either been victimized or have known somebody who's been victimized will get that. But those of you who've never had no, any type of connection with this, this issue, I think oftentimes we think it's just sort of over here, um, and it's not that prevalent, and maybe people like me are making a bigger deal about it than they should, and you know, you're just stirring up people. That's a danger. I really think that that is sort of the lie that Satan has, has weaved so well, not only inside the church, but outside the church. And so it just goes to show, listen, the best thing I can do is just present you data and let you decide for yourself uh, based, upon that, uh, based upon that data. How about inside the church? Um, three companies that insure most Protestant churches reported uh, receiving approximately 260 reports a year of minors being sexually abused by church leaders and members. Now those, think about this, th- those are insurance companies, I said last night. Those are, those are only reports coming from churches that have policies that cover these issues. Those are only coming from churches that actually reported it to their insurance company. And those are only coming from uh, situations where the actual person told to somebody in the church. So my, I'm willing to guess that that number is much higher. But this is, this is probably the floor um, of what we see in the Protestant church. Now, comparatively, 220, uh, this t- that will date back to about 19 in the mid-50s, if you bring from the 50s up and you, and you do a little bit of math, um, based upon the Catholic Church's report, and again, I'm sure that's uh, underreported, uh, 228 credible accusations a year of child report, uh, abuse reported in the Catholic Church. Uh, so, what does that tell you? Well, number one, both of these numbers are significantly lower. Number two is that 
the Protestant church, we've got a, as big or worse a problem in the Protestant, in the Protestant world, not the Protestant church, uh, than the Catholic church. Now, you know, you might be thinking, yeah, but the, the Protestant world is much larger than the Catholic church, and you're right. It is. But I also think that uh, the data we have from the Protestant world is far more limited than what we have from the Catholic Church. Because the Protestant world is divided up and we've got various denominations. We've got, I mean, if you just take the Baptist, I'm not picking on Baptists, but Baptists are individual churches. So how do we even assess and keep track of this data? It's almost impossible. Where you have a, an institution like the Catholic Church, it's much easier because of its, of its structure it's much easier to be able to obtain this type of data and to, um, to actually do something with it. So one of the things we, we struggle with in the Protestant world is trying to collect this data. I mean, think about Think of all the, the little churches and little country churches throughout this country that, like, most of us don't even know exist. Like, who knows? Uh, we're not getting data from those types of places. So I really think these numbers uh, on both accounts are, uh, are significantly higher in, in reality. Christian Ministry Resources a number of years ago had a uh, report that said child abuse allegations against American churches averaged 70 per week. These are a- allegations, um, 70 per week. Um, and again, I think it's probably much higher uh, as a result of under-reporting. Um, 1% of churches reported abuse allegations annually. And uh, interesting, this, uh, this figure here on who is doing the abusing within faith communities. And 42% were volunteers, 25 were paid staff, and 25 were other children. I think this is a little bit older. I have to check what, uh, what year that uh, um, survey was taken. But I think we're seeing a rise in, in like I said last night, child-on-child abuse. Uh, I think that number is, is increasing. And, and that's something we have to deal with. When we're dealing with child protection policies and trainings, uh, yes, we need to focus on adult-child abuse. But we also have to grasp the reality that that children are abusing other children at younger and younger ages. And there's various reasons for that. We don't know exactly all of the reasons. Uh, part of it is what goes on at home. You know, if, if, a, if a seven-year-old is sexually abusing a four-year-old, um, yeah, I'm concerned about the seven-year-old. That, that child needs help. I'm really concerned about what's going on at home. Is that seven-year-old being victimized? Is that seven-year-old having access to pornography at home that they are watching and then now acting it out? We need to know those things. Um, the other thing about child-on-child abuse, which is really, uh, which is really important, is that um, of any type of offender that is, that is out there, in my opinion, about the only type of offender that I think has any hope of getting true substantive help are the juvenile offenders. I think the adult offenders, quite frankly, and, and some of you may disagree with me, uh, it's too late. Uh, I have I've yet to see an adult offender that is not a concern or a danger. I don't, even if they acknowledge it, um, even if, and if they acknowledge it, that's a good thing. And they will probably tell you that they still are concerned about themselves and reoffending. Juvenile offenders, at least if we get them at the right age and get them the right help, uh, have a chance of, of walking away from that, uh, that type of, um, uh, that type of life. You know, if you look at the statistics that I told you earlier, the one in four, the one in five. Um, just again, I hate math. That's why I went to law school uh, because I really can't. I can't even help my my fifteen year old with math anymore. I stopped helping her when she was twelve. Uh, but uh, if you take uh, a church of two hundred, hundred men, hundred women, that's twenty point five percent of your church are sexual abuse survivors. I mean, that's really that to me. That's really significant. Um, 
Ask yourself, if you had 25% of your congregation had cancer, 20.5% of your congregation had lost a child or lost a home in a natural disaster, how would our churches be responding? Now, I'm a little bit preaching to the choir here because you guys are, you all are in a church that has set aside this for a weekend to address it. And that's really significant, really significant. Um, And it's really encouraging to me. But there are a lot of churches that aren't. And I'm thinking, man, why is it that if we've got, and I think these numbers are low, quite frankly, uh, because I think oftentimes uh, victimized uh, people and survivors oftentimes gravitate towards churches. And I think, quite frankly, the, the rate of abuse or sexual abuse within churches is actually higher. Um, that's just, that, that is anecdotal uh, evidence. But, but I do think so, and, and it's just because offenders, and there is evidence that offenders are drawn to faith communities. Offenders tend to be more religious than other people, and so they go to these types of places. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but again, why aren't we talking about this issue? I mean, I can tell you in my church, if 20.5% of the congregation had lost a child to cancer, we would probably be starting ministries to deal with it. We'd be preaching about it. We'd be creating resources for them. We'd be connecting them with resources. But all too often in our churches today, and I think this is part of the dark, the, the, the dark plan of, of Satan, is in our churches today, that's the one area where it's, where it's just quiet. We don't talk about it. Uh, and we've got a lot of abuse survivors sitting in our churches um, in pain, but also in silence. Uh, and, and that whole other area of, of discussion at some point in time are male abuse survivors. You know, when we're talking about sexual offenders today, uh, there are men and women who sexually offend children. And there are men and women who've been victimized. I found in churches the men to be the most silent of the victims in our churches today. And it's tragic. Because of the stigma and stereotype that they're afraid of if they come forward and say something. They're afraid that people will think, oh, that means you're an offender. My kids are going to stay away from you. Or you're gay. Oh, my goodness. These, I'm telling you, it's, it's, they just stay quiet. And if, I think, if we knew how many male survivors of sexual abuse were sitting in our churches, I think we'd be astonished. Um, but generally, still fairly quiet. We're making a little bit of headway. You know, when I write... Um, I write this blog for Religion News Service. I'm actually ending it this month. But, but <clears throat> it's interesting. When I've written about male survivors, uh, we get the fewest comments. And I, want, I always was wondering, well, that's interesting. And then somebody who's a male survivor said, oh, that makes complete sense to me. It's because we're still processing, like, do we even, do we even know, think that this was abuse? And if we do think it was abuse, how dare we would even acknowledge or say anything about it uh, and let alone post a comment about it. Uh, so we've got a long way to go as it relates to this issue um, uh, with both male and female survivors. So abusers, who are they? Um, well, based on, again, the research, uh, abusers tend to be married, employed, European-American, and older than 30 years of age. So again, helping s- set aside the stereotypes of what we may think uh, a sexual abuser of children may uh, look like or act like. Um, so, who are they? Well, I've divided them into three categories uh, of, of abusers, and I think that this is based on my experience and research. I think this is, uh, is fairly accurate. The first one is what we would commonly call the stranger perpetrator. Uh, this is the stranger danger uh, type of offender. Um, somebody that the child has never seen or has only had pr- minimum prior contacts. 
Um, I remember prosecuting a case of a child riding their bike to school, uh, a guy who's also riding his bike to school early in the morning, child had never seen him, grabs the child, uh, drags him into the woods and sexually assaults him. Child escapes and the person is eventually apprehended. That's classic stranger perpetrator. Child didn't know it, didn't know this person, and the person targeted this child. This is the person at the park who's, you know, do, uh, targeting children. It's really bizarre, and I've, I've done this once, but I know people who do this. If you go to a park, go to a park where kids congregate, and just sit there and watch. And I'm afraid what you may see on certain days are, more often than not, uh, middle-aged to older men who are hanging out at the park and uh, who oftentimes are not just hanging out but begin to interact with children. Now, I'm not saying that that person's an offender. I have no, no idea. I'm not saying that person's going to grab that child and go offend them. It's just concerning when you see that. Uh, and I've known friends who will see that and they'll go to the mo- ch- uh, child's mom who might be busy doing something or the dad who's busy doing something and say, excuse me, <laughs> did you see who's communicating with your child. And the parent's like, oh my goodness, because they're not thinking that at the time. Uh, but that is stranger offender. Now, interesting enough, that's about 10% of offenders. It's a very significant minority of offenders are the stranger offenders. Then there's the acquaintance perpetrator. So molester is a non-family member, um, a family friend, clergy, next-door neighbor, just somebody who knows the child, somebody in church, youth pastor, um, somebody that knows the child, but oftentimes who is also knows the child's family. Acquaintance offenders are really good at, at engaging and getting to know the parents and family of the child and gaining their trust. I have a good friend of mine who serves on our board named Michael Reagan. He's the son of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and when he was a 12 or 13-year-old boy, uh, his mother was Jane Wyman. She was a well-known Hollywood actress. And so after school... Uh, she sent him to boarding school for a couple years, and then she said, no, I don't want to put you in boarding school. I want you back home. But then, after school every day, she would send him to a very exclusive Beverly Hills, basically, uh, ch- after-school child care program. And the man who owned and operated this, childhood, uh, this child uh, care center uh, really befriended Michael, targeted him, because he knew. He said, wow, this is a guy that doesn't have dad at home. Dad's busy being governor, or at that time he was actually being uh, a movie actor, and then becoming governor. So this child's dad's never home. So he began to target him. But not only did he target Michael, he targeted his mom, Jane, in the sense of talking to her, becoming her friend, uh, letting her know how much he enjoyed, uh, you know, Michael being at the daycare center. She was thrilled, he told me. She was, like, she was saying, man, this is the dad you never had. He'd play football, throw the football with all the things dads should be. I don't have a son, so I don't know. And I was just saying, I, if I had a son, I wouldn't know what to do with him because I don't play football or any sports, so I would hope he wouldn't like sports. But, but anyway, the things that you're supposed to be doing, he was doing. Well, what did that do? That created an incredible amount of trust between not only Michael and this offender, but between this offender and mom. And the more trust that was developed between the offender and mom, the more likely she was to give, allow Michael to spend more time with him, unsupervised. And that's when the abuse occurred. He began abusing him after school. And he says he'll, he'll um, never forget what really changed his life was uh, they, had a, they took the whole after school program out to uh, go hiking in the mountains in California, Southern California. And he, um, 
Uh, this guy took Michael, brought him off to the side where the other kids were going off doing something, and uh, he had Michael take off his clothes, and then he took pictures of him. And then about two weeks later, he was bringing Michael home from after school care, and mom answers the door, and he says, hey, I was wondering if I could bring Michael to dinner. And she was thrilled again. Oh, this is the dad that, his dad's not bringing him to dinner. This is the dad that's going to take him to dinner. And Michael remembers hearing that. He didn't know what to do because he knew they probably weren't going to dinner. But he also knew, he saw the look in his mom's eyes about how much she trusted this man. And he, he, was, he was perplexed. He's, again, we have to, and Mike, Mike says this over and over again, which is really true. He says you have to look at this stuff through the lens, through the eyes of the child, not as a parent. What's the child's, what's the child's perspective of this? We oftentimes look at it as, as adults, like, why would you do that? Well, no, take time to look at it through the eyes of the child. So he goes, brings him home, and he says, uh, he walks into his apartment, and this guy has a, a room that's like a dark room. You know, for nowadays we don't use dark rooms, but, but for developing pictures. And he shows Michael how to develop pictures, and Michael thinks this is really cool. And he says, do you want to try? And he says, sure. And he says, okay. And so if, I used to do this in high school. You have the three solutions, and you put the one picture in one solution, second solution, and the third solution, and you're... Your picture suddenly appears. So Michael's doing this, and he's really excited about it, and he thinks this is really cool until he gets to the third solution, and the picture that's developed is of himself. And then the offender says, you sure wouldn't want mom or dad to see that, would you? And he says at that moment in time, his life completely changed. He goes, I ran from everything and everyone, including God. I wanted nothing to do with it. I, was, I lived my life in perpetual fear. Even when my dad, years later, is running for president, I lived in perpetual state of fear that this photograph would surface. Um, and so he, you know, he, was, he remained silent. But a lot of that, and here's a guy who's almost 70 now. I was with him a few weeks ago as we were lobbying for a bill in Congress. And, and he, 70-year-old um, <laughs> guy sharing with the congressman and his staff about what happened to him. And... He's still breaking down. And he said, look at me. This happened to me in the mid-50s, and it still impacts me to this degree today. Um, and a lot of that was because this acquaintance perpetrator really knew how to gain the trust of the child's parent. And that is very, very true. And that happens, and so oftentimes with acquaintance perpetrators, they'll place themselves in positions where they can do that. Youth pastors coaches, all those things are placing themselves in positions where they have access to children, but not just access, but they develop a rapport and a relationship with the child and with the parent. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I think in the church, I think there are a lot of offenders that are trying to get inside the church to, to, to uh, access and abuse children, but the greater danger to me are the acquaintance perpetrators who have actually grown up in the church. <laughs> there are lots of them, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the danger of those types of offenders because they know the language, they know the culture, and they utilize that in order to access and abuse. Uh, this group is about 40%. Now, if you do math, you'll say, wait, well, that's 68, 40, that's more, than, that's more than 100. Yeah, my math is really bad. Um, however, <clears throat> the reason for that is, is depending on the research you look at, how they define intra-family and acquaintance perpetrators sometimes uh, can overlap a little bit. But as you'll see, the intra-family perpetrator is by far the the largest percentage of those who are abusing children. Uh, this is somebody who's related to the victim and someone who is usually but not always living in the same household. And these are the most difficult as a prosecutor to prosecute. Why do you think that? Give me a chance to 
sip of the water. Why do you think those cases would be difficult? And they're all difficult, but what dynamics with a, a familial perpetrator would make it difficult? Yeah, those are all great, very, very good responses. I, I, I would add, too, that I think that, um, I think they're very difficult, too, because it's so complex for a child. Again, looking through the eyes of the child, um, there's, I've, I've talked to children and, and who are now adults who say, you know, my dad was, was raping me when I was a child, um, and I knew it was wrong, but it was my dad, so I still loved my dad. And talk about con- conflicted emotions. Uh, some, when they're really young, don't even realize it's wrong yet until they get a little bit older. Um, and so that becomes very, very complicated. And offenders, high-risk offenders, know that. And they know that the child will, will keep it secret. I have a friend of mine who, uh, for years, he's got one of the most horrific stories I've ever heard, and I won't tell you all about it, but, but he, was, he was sexually abused by both his mother and his father. Um, and he got to the point where he, he uh, decided that maybe one of the only ways that could stop would be to become unattractive to them. And so he became almost 500 pounds, um, and it didn't stop. Um, and let me tell you something, and on a side note, um, I look at him all the time. I say, Norris, I said, the fact that you're alive and the fact that you love Jesus is the most beautiful illustration of God's goodness and his grace. Because otherwise it makes no sense. <laughs> and if you met this guy, you'd see that, that, I mean, he really is an amazing person. Um, but he came out of this and he, he never reported his parents. They were never prosecuted. To his credit, I think, I'm not sure if I even say this his credit, his dad lived to a ripe old age and, and ended up in a nursing home and Norris helped pay for it. Um, which, again, I don't, I'm not sure if I would have done that. Uh, but he kept silent all those years because of that conflict. He remembers going home to his parents when they had their first child, wanting to show his parents their, their child. And he goes, that very night, my dad comes over to me in the living room and says, do you want to have sex tonight? And I looked at him and said, Dad, sons don't have sex with their father. And he says, that's the last time we ever went back to my parents' house. Um, Kept quiet, even as an adult, kept quiet uh, until just recently. Uh, So this this is a dynamic that is really, really complicated. And here's the reality, whether you like it, accept it or not. Especially that last category, strong likelihood that 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 category of perpetrator uh, maybe in your church. There may be children in your church, families in your church, where sexual abuse is going on. And it oftentimes may be from the very family that you would be the most surprised. <laughs> it's amazing, even with the work I do, it's, it's, it's dark, but it's amazing how oftentimes we, when we find out what's going on behind the doors of homes, how absolutely contrary that is to the public persona of the family. Um, and so, again, that doesn't mean that you're going, okay, who's a, who's a sex offender in this church, okay? Uh, that, that's not the purpose of this. What I'm saying is acknowledge that, that that could be very, very realistically happening in your church. So don't think, well, not, not any family in our church. That's a mistake if that's, if that's where you go to immediately. Um, you just have to understand it. So, and the reason you under, have to understand it that way is because when and if something happens that gives you a little bit of an indicator that something's amiss... If you understand this, your reaction will be to look further into it. 
If you don't understand this, your reaction is going to be naturally to convince yourself, oh, that's ridiculous. I can't believe I'm even thinking that about this family. And that's a mistake. I don't know how many times we in the church, and it's not just in the church, but we in the church will see something that's really not normal. And what we will do is remain quiet because we will actually begin feeling guilty that we're seeing this and we're thinking this. When in actuality, just perhaps, just perhaps, maybe that sense that you're getting is the Holy Spirit. And we need to act on it rather than, rather than stifle it. So again, uh, the, that's the, the third type. So these are the three general categories of, of offenders. Now, we zero in a little bit more, as I said earlier, uh, about offenders inside the church. Uh, this study in 2001 um, found that 93% of sex offenders describe themselves as being religious. Now, again, that doesn't, you know, that's a general term, religious, but what that should tell us is that offenders, if, if 93% consider themselves religious, then I'm certain that a good percentage of those place themselves in religious environments, regardless of what type of environment that is. We need to know that. That's why I think churches, not just churches, faith communities in general, uh, oftentimes draw these types of individuals, either from the outside or, like I said, they're homegrown. They've, they've been born and raised uh, in, in that type of community. 2006 uh, study showed that sex offenders maintaining significant involvement with religious institutions have more sexual offense convictions, more victims, and their victims are younger. Again, all of this should just tell us, okay, we need to, we need to understand the dynamics inside our faith communities and the dangers that exist, not just to become petrified, no. It's so you can begin as a church working together to develop uh, a, a culture and an environment that understands this and that combats it, that stays five to ten feet ahead of the offender. You want to create a culture at your churches where these types of offenders go, you know what, I don't want to be at this place because that's too dangerous for me. And they go somewhere. I don't want them going anywhere else, okay? I don't. Uh, and maybe if we can begin to train and equip every single church to understand this, they won't. But as it relates to your church, that's why this is, in, this is important information. Because what you want to do here at, at Red Mountain and Covenant and, and wherever else is, is to develop a, a culture of safety uh, and protection within your church. And it's more than just policies and procedures. It's more than just coming to a training. Uh, it's, it's really changing the culture and landscape of your church. And that's going to be a constant growth process uh, that's going to last throughout the life of the church. One offender said, I consider church people easy to fool. They have a trust that comes from being religious. They tend to be better folks all around and seem to want to believe in the good that exists in people. I think they want to believe in people. And because of that, you can easily convince with or without convincing words. I mean, this, is an, this is a convicted, confessed perpetrator. And he's basically telling us, he's basically telling us, um, I like churches and here's why. Now, you've got bad theology because he says he believes in the good that exists in people. Um, but that's, you know what, we can, we can talk as Presbyterians about uh, um, the depravity of man. But the reality is, if you really scratch below the surface, um, when we're in church, we, we tend to actually think about people in this way, that these are good people. Now, if, we were, if you were asked, okay, well, what do you mean by good people? We'd say, well, okay, we're all sinners. And, but, but generally speaking, these are good people. And I'm not saying that that's not true. I love my church. I love the families in my church. 
And I would think, yes, we're all sinners saved by God's grace. They're good people. But I have to be careful with that because if that's how I, if that's the narrative or the lens, excuse me, that I am looking at everybody in my church, it becomes very difficult consciously or subconsciously for me to acknowledge or even understand that a guy like this may be lurking around in, in our church. Um, so again, uh, let's, let's learn from these folks. A lot of offenders are narcissistic, which means that they are going to, they love to talk about themselves. And sometimes with researchers like Dr. Anna Salter, she lets them talk and keeps letting them talk and asks them questions and they're sort of proud about it. He's got a whole DVD I show my class at, uh, at the law school, uh, DVDs of interviews just like this one, but of uh, numerous offenders. And man, we learn a lot by just letting them talk because they love to talk about themselves and taking that and learning from it, taking that and helping that become uh, what we use to help transform our culture at church to becoming safer places for children and less safe for uh, offenders. Some general observations about sexual abuse. Um, this is one I told you earlier, uh, high-risk offenders, uh, anywhere between, tw- I think there's one figure, it's a 20, one says 50, and 150 children before being caught. Now, one of the things, and we'll go back to this, why that's relevant, is if somebody in your church gets caught for offending a child, and I see this time and time again, church confronts them, person starts crying, sort of like I said last night, person starts crying, and and says, I, you know, this is the very first child I've ever offended. I'm so glad I got caught. God must love me because I'm getting caught now. And I can really begin to change my life. This figure says that person's lying to you. Okay? Why are you going to believe that person when they tell you that? Number one, offenders are incredibly deceitful. Number two, the, the evidence, the data says there's a very, very, very strong likelihood that that person's lying to you. But this is what happens. If we go, wow, he's acknowledged it. I mean, how many offenders even acknowledge it? He's acknowledged it, which means he must be telling the truth. And therefore, if he's telling the truth about that, then he must be really sorry for what he did. And this is wonderful. And everybody begins to, to, uh, to praise God and think that God's at work, except for the victim. And when the victim and the family don't jump on board with this, with this repentance party, they get turned on by so many people in the church. Well, why, wait a minute. Why are you guys, you're not being forgiving. Let's focus on your forgiveness issue. I've seen that time and time again. Not only just in, in context of families, but even in victims. Well, they'll go to counselors, um, and counselors who are not trained to deal with this, and will begin to be talking about the fact, well, have you forgiven him? No, no, I, I want to kill him. <laughs> well, let's focus on your forgiveness issues. Wow, we've just re-victimized a victim. Instead of dealing with the horrific offense that was perpetrated against them and the trauma that was caused by them, it's like saying to somebody who's, uh, you know, who came out of the uh, uh, Nazi concentration camp, have you forgiven the Nazi guards that, that decimated your life? No, I want to kill them. Well, you know what? Let's talk about your forgiveness. You're, you're, bit, you're being bitter. And it happens all of the time. So it's really, it's really important that we understand these figures to understand that there's so oftentimes what we hear from offenders is simply not true. Here's one who said, I created my first victim when I was 13, a female victim. Sally was six and I was 13. I created my first male victim when I was 15 and I've been victimizing male children virtually nonstop until my incarceration. 
How old are you now? I'm 33 and I've been incarcerated for three years. How many total victims do you have? And listen to what he says. He's, he's, he's proud of this. Look how, how meticulous he has been in keeping numbers. I have 11 male rape victims, one female rape victim, and I have approximately 1,250 male molestation victims. And I say approximately because I really don't know. So again, hearing from the offenders themselves saying, I've got so many I can't even keep track. But the ones I can keep track on, I'm, I'm, and if you watch this video, uh, he's sort of proud about it. He's, he's sort of boastful about the fact that he can remember uh, how many victims he's had. And he's a little bit, you can tell he's a little frustrated when he can't remember the specific numbers of molestation victims. Um, so, again, uh, m- most offenders, not all, not all, most offenders have numerous victims. And then the ones that don't have numerous different victims uh, fall into the other categories is the offender that has maybe one victim but has victimized that person over and over and over and over again. You see that within the familial uh, context where you have a child who may be the only person this offender's ever victimized. Usually not, but maybe. Um, and that child is victimized for, for years because uh, they, there's nowhere they can go and there's not much they can say or do to, to bring it to an end. Double life. I want to describe a child molester I know very well. This man was raised a devout Christ, by devout Christian parents. As a child, he rarely missed church. And after he became an adult, he was faithful as a church member. He was a straight-A student in high school and college. He's been married and has a child of his own. He coached Little League Baseball and was a choir director at his church. He never used illegal drugs and never had a drink of alcohol. He was considered the clean-cut, all-American boy. Everyone seemed to like him, and he often volunteered in numerous civic community functions. He had a well-paying career and was considered well-to-do in society. But from the age of 13 years of age, this boy sexually molested little boys. He never victimized a stranger. All of his victims were friends. I know this child molester very well because he is me. See, he tells you his life. From the outside, this is why I'm saying it's really important that we don't make these, these judgmental calls based on the outside. Because from the outside, this person is like, this is a, like the person that I want to marry my, one of my three daughters. <laughs> you go, wow, this, is, this guy's really the model citizen. But he's not. And there's no way we would know about that unless, A, one of these children come forward, or we see something, or observe it, or he just comes forward, which is highly unlikely. And that's one of the reasons why I want to train, we were trying to train and equip churches to create environments that when you have somebody like this that really, if we don't train and equip the environment and the culture to do something about it, this person will get away with it for his entire life because of that double, that double life he's living. But if we can train and equip our churches to identify concerning behaviors, identify things that, uh, not only just training our adults, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, but training our children as well, and we begin to, to bring this stuff to the surface so that this double life, it's a lot more difficult for offenders to live a double life within our church community, then we're creating a safer community. Because if you can't, one of the reasons he's able to do this is because people are so quick to, to make an assessment of him based upon all these wonderful things he's doing. And then he gets away with all this other stuff because people, everybody's looking over here, wow, this guy's great. And then he gets away with doing all this horrific uh, offenses over here because no one's even paying attention. Whereas if we can create environments in our churches where we're, we're not just looking here, we're, we're looking as much as we can the entire spectrum. And when we see some type of behavior, because let me tell you, if you're paying attention, even with somebody like this, more often than not, you're going to be able to observe something that's concerning. And it may not scream out child molester. 
but it will be something that's concerning if you're paying attention. But if all you're doing is looking over here, you're not even going to notice it. And so we can raise awareness within our churches so that people like this, even though they're living a double life, it's going to be way more difficult for them to live that life uh, in your church than in a place, uh, in a different type of environment that's not received that type of training. And then how do, they, how do they select their victims? And again, this is just one person's, uh, this is one person's experience as an offender. The question is, how do you molest, uh, you did not molest all children, how would you choose? He says, first of all, you start the grooming process from day one. The children you're interested in, you may find a child you might be attracted to. For me, it might be nobody fat. It had to be, you know, a nice looking child. You may look at a kid that doesn't have a father image at home. You know, you start deducting, this kid may not have a father or a father that cares about him. So you have a group of 25 kids, you might find nine that are appealing, then you start looking at their family backgrounds, and you find out which ones are most accessible. Then eventually you get it down to the one you think is the easiest target, and that's the one you choose to abuse. You see the thought process. Now this is not all offenders. These are what I would call high-risk offenders. There's also this sort of the opportunistic offender, which doesn't, the offender doesn't give a lot of thought to who they abuse, they just see if the opportunity exists, they'll, they'll act on it. These types are, they're all dangerous. These types are really dangerous because there's so much thought process that goes in. They target, they know how to groom. The grooming process is really that process in which that offender begins to make contact with the child and the child's family and to develop that trust between them. There's so many various ways that, that offenders groom children, but the, one of the big concerns is, is their initial contact with their, that child. How are they making that initial contact? Oftentimes it's in church. I'm not as concerned about an offender actually sexually victimizing a child inside the church, uh, on the church property. It can happen, and we need to obviously have, have policies and procedures to focus on that. What concerns me most is, because I've seen this, is that the church property is where offenders initially make contact with children. And today, with technology the way it is, it's pretty frightening. Because all an offender has to do is get your child's Instagram account, their Facebook, I think Facebook's almost passe for kids nowadays. So their Instagram account, Snapchat account, uh, any of that, tech, their phone number, their cell number. And now they've re- obtained that at, at church and in the church setting, and now they can go get to work. They can get to work be- on making contact with that child, developing just, and it's, it, it starts off oftentimes very, very innocently. Of just, hey, great to see you at church today. And that child, again, if this person has targeted a particular child, going after the child that maybe doesn't have a, a father figure at home. Or maybe the father's not really paying attention to the child. And I'm not saying that offenders just go after those types of children, because I've seen them go after other children as well. But assuming for a moment that that's the case, once that offender begins to make contact with that child outside the church, now that they have their, their contact information, they develop a little rapport. They pay attention to that child. Oftentimes, looking through the lens of the child, the child responds to that attention. Children need that attention from adults. If we're not providing it to them, they'll give it to the person who's intentionally is providing it to them. And that begins that grooming process, at least with the child. And oftentimes, like I said earlier, uh, there's sort of a different route that they do with the parents. If they can do both of those at the same time, develop that, that trust and relationship with the child in communicating Uh, almost become the confidant of the child. Oftentimes they'll get the child to talk about their frustrations of life and and maybe frustrations at home and they'll provide some advice and let them know that, hey, I'm your advocate and the child becomes safer and safer and safer with this person. Oftentimes these same children will move away from their parents um, because emotionally, because they're getting their emotions satisfied here. 
And at the same time, this person oftentimes is connecting with parents as well. So that when that person says, hey, can I, uh, can your child go with, uh, you know, with a couple of others of us to a movie, um, child's wanting to go because they've developed this, this rapport. And the parent, because they've worked hard in developing that uh, relationship with the parent, the parent feels safe and allows the child to go. Um, so again, there's thought process that goes into uh, so many offenders and how they, uh, how they want to act out and, and uh, abuse little ones. Here's something that's really important, I think, is, is sort of the, the difference between likability versus trustworthiness. I can't tell you how many uh, situations, either as a prosecutor or even my work with Grace, where the person says, there's no way this guy could do it. He's so nice. He's so likable. And you go, well, okay, so that's how you're going to base your decision on, that he's nice, he's likable? There's a difference between likability and trustworthiness. So a quote I really like is, niceness is a decision, not a character trait. It's really important to know that. I can't tell you how many people go, no, he couldn't do this. Why? Because he's nice. He's such a nice guy. Well, that's not a character trait. I can choose when I wake up this morning to be nice. That's not a character trait. I might intentionally choose to be nice for various reasons. That's different than being trustworthy. Trustworthy is not just by the way I act or the way I portray myself. Trustworthiness is a character trait that has to be gleaned over a long period of time in in knowing somebody. Even then, like I said earlier, I don't trust anybody 100%. But again, we should need to move away from these these sort of immediate stereotypes or, or responses that we have when we hear about somebody that may be accused of this. I mean, think of it when this first came out. Uh, last year, or actually came out much earlier than this, but when the news story hit uh, the spotlight of Bill Cosby. So many people, I grew up as Bill Cosby being Dr. Huxtable, okay? I wanted to be in the Cosby family in that show. That was an awesome family. Nice. Now, of course, my, my, <laughs> what a lot of people did is, is Dr. Huxtable is, is Bill Cosby. Well, no, he was playing a role, but... You, you begin to think that way, and you begin to say, man, he's a, just a, he's a nice person. And that's why people refused for such a long... I mean, how many women did it have to take to come forward with these stories that were almost identical, and many of them had not never... In fact, most of them never knew each other, for people to finally go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe he's not so nice. <laughs> it took dozens. And I think that we, have that we struggle with that same issue inside the church. Uh, so remember that. Remember this. Uh, remember this quote uh, when you are uh, when you're thinking about and dealing with a situation where somebody has been accused, or or whether you are seeing or observed any type of behavior, or somebody has told you about behavior that is concerning. And sometimes, like I said earlier, your immediate response: "Well, that's a nice guy. I can't believe you'd even think that." Don't do that, <laughs> because what you're doing at that point in time is is you're fueling and enabling that person to continue doing what they're doing because he's supposedly a nice person. One said, uh, child molesters are very professional at what they do, uh, and they do a good job at it. My hope and prayer for the church is that we do a much better job than they do in understanding how they act and keeping ahead of them so we can prevent not only them from abusing, but identify them and bring them to justice when they do. 
One of the things we'll talk about a little bit later, and we talked about it last night a little bit, is, is the response. I have found in churches that most of the time if you talk about, do you want to protect children from abuse, everybody's like, yes, of course. Who wouldn't want to protect children from abuse? And that's good. But what I also find frustrating is sometimes that breaks down when it's dealing with, okay, what do we do when somebody comes forward and actually we learn about abuse or somebody suspects some abuse? What do we do? And that tends to, that's when the whole thing begins to fall apart. Because it all depends oftentimes, as we talked last night, on who, who's doing the disclosing and who's doing the alleged perpetrating. And if it's somebody we don't think could be doing it, we suddenly, even though we want to protect children from abuse, we just can't imagine this person doing it because they're so nice or because of whatever reason. And so the whole system breaks down and we have to get around that and say that's not how we're going to base our uh, responses to these types of concerns and, uh, and disclosures. Let me just, uh, I'm going to end this, uh, this session with just some things that I've seen specifically in faith communities that offenders tend to use. I call them the five exploitations. Uh, these are oftentimes most successfully done by offenders who have grown up within these environments because they know, uh, they know the culture and they take that culture, they distort it and exploit it and, and abuse. Uh, the first one is the exploitation of religious cover. That's sort of what we were talking about earlier. That's the outward demonstration of religious practices or doctrine that covers over some sinister intentions. That's the, uh, that's the pastor, the Sunday school teacher, the youth pastor, somebody in a church who deliberately decides to take this position because they'll have that cover and, and be able to access people they would never be able to access before because of that cover. Think about it this way. Uh, if somebody walked into your church tomorrow morning, You'd never seen them before. Um, and they sat in the back. And I would ask you, do you trust that person? You go, I don't even know that person. Of course I don't trust that person. Okay. You're sitting in a church and you have a brand new pastor. First Sunday, pastor comes in. I will tell you this. Whether we use the word trust or any other, other type of term, uh, I, I'm willing to um, guess safely that you will have a lot more trust for that person than you will that stranger you've never seen that's sitting in the back of the room. And the reason for that is the position. In the back of your mind, you're thinking pastor or youth pastor. Um, uh, obviously, they went through a vetting process. So I, I, I trust this. I trust, maybe not wholeheartedly. I don't, I don't know him, but I do trust him more than the complete stranger. Well, that's what I'm saying here is oftentimes offenders will target positions in churches where there's that cover, and that cover oftentimes is a cover that gives them a greater degree of trust amongst the congregation than if they just came in as a, as a typical member uh, or visitor in the church. Um, second exploitation is of religious issues or doctrines. Uh, I see this a lot where, where an offender will take a particular issue or doctrine and, and distort it in order to abuse the child or distort it in order to keep a child silent. Just some examples. Defining sin to justify. With a younger child, again, looking at it through the lens of a child. Here's this person that they know in church. Whether it's a youth pastor, whether it's another congregation member, it's an adult. And this person is, is saying uh, that this, act, this action, uh, this behavior that I'm engaged in with you uh, is an expression of God's love to you. Now, we all may go, that's crazy. But to a six-year-old or seven-year-old, it's not so crazy. It's confusing, maybe, but it's not so crazy. 
because they hear this word sin in church. And it's like, oh my goodness, maybe this is bad, but oh no, this is not sin. This is, this is actually love. They've also heard that term love in church. And so you see what the offender is doing. Is he, he's, taking, he's, he's going like this. This is not sin, and this is not love, or this is love. Um, very, very perplexing for a young child victim. But then as that child gets older, and maybe begins to realize, you know what? This is wrong. I know that this is wrong. What the offender will oftentimes do then is define sin to silence. You should be ashamed of your sin. Now suddenly it's gone from this is sort of an expression of God-ordained love, it's not sin, to you should be ashamed of this sin. I tell, try to tell pastors all the time, if you're ever speaking from the pulpit or anywhere, I don't care where it is, to a group of people, and you're talking about the issue of sexuality and premarital sex, and you're talking about how premarital sex is sinful, you better clarify that. Because there are victims sitting in your congregation, there may be even child victims sitting in your congregation that are listening to you and hearing that premarital sex is sinful and suddenly realizing, oh my goodness, I'm engaged in premarital sex. And they'll be shamed into silence. And if that offender's sitting in the church, you better believe that offender's going to take that and exploit it. Didn't you hear the pastor? He says that what we're doing is sinful because we're having premarital sex. You're really going to disclose that? It's the Mike Reagan thing all over again with the picture. You really want mom and dad to know you're having premarital sex? I mean, you hear what the pastor said about it? And that child will remain quiet oftentimes forever out of the shame. Because again, a term has been distorted by an offender. Um, Distancing from God. Because of your sin, God doesn't care about you, but I do. See the distortion there? Yes, you're sinning, and God's mad at you. God's not happy with you. Again, look, thinking of it through the lens of a child. God's not happy with you, but don't feel all alone. Don't feel so isolated, because I'm here for you. I'll, I'll never leave your side. And the child at, moment, at that moment feels like they're isolated, and the only person that understands them or maybe will love them is the very person who's destroying their life. And again, it's all the basis of taking terms, doctrinal terms, that they've learned, that everybody has learned, and twisting them. And children, there's a good reason why you teach good theology in in churches and and beginning with our children. Uh, But, you know, again, looking at through the lens of the child, the child oftentimes will look to the adult as the the wiser one and will hear these terms and hear these terms defined and will will accept them. Um, So, again... Uh, and then just, you know, we won't do it right now, but think of others. Think of other types of, of uh, terminologies and doctrines that you think offenders could, uh, could utilize in exploiting and abusing ch- children or silencing them. Um, I think if you thought about it, you would be able to come up with a number of them. And, and the more you come up with, the more you can be empathetic to the plight of these child victims and to know what to do as a church in order to minimize that whether it's training our children in theology, which is good, but also knowing that uh, telling children whenever an adult is talking to them about any type of issue with regard to doctrine or sin or anything, to talk to mom and dad about it. Um, it's very difficult in this situation for a child to come and talk to mom and dad about, about this particular situation. However, what they may do is come to mom and dad and say, ask about the word, ask about sin. They may not say, hey, this man's, you know, abusing me and he's telling me it's not sinful. That's, they're not going to do that. But they may come to you, and if you have your antennas up and you've been trained and equipped, you might be able to go, okay, wait a minute. Let me dig a little bit deeper here because my child's asking you about sin. 
And what is sin? What, why isn't, is, you know, is, is something I'm doing sinful even if I don't want to do it? You know, things like that. Be, be cognizant about those conversations, not just as parents, but as congregation members, as volunteers in, in helping with children in churches. Children will ask those questions. They may not even realize what they're asking in the sense they may not even realize that they're actually in some way indirectly disclosing abuse. And if we're not paying attention, it'll go right over our heads. If we are paying attention, we might want to follow up those questions from the child with some questions of our own that might give us a little bit more of an indication of why this child is asking uh, that question. Another one is, um, this, is a, this is sort of the same issue, but it's coming from the, instead of the, the, the offender defining terms, it's the victim trying to process it. And this is uh, what I talked about earlier about having sex outside of marriage or uh, I've talked to children uh, who are now adults who say, is God going to punish me for this sin? Um, and again, a lot of this is their own understanding of these terms, but these own, their own understanding of these terms oftentimes is further defined by the adult offender. Um, another one is the exploitation of power, submission to authority. Uh, I don't know about you, but from the earliest of ages, we're always teaching our kids to respect and obey their elders. And I think that's true, and I think that's biblical. However, uh, I think we oftentimes do that in a way that devalues children. And that is, just obey. Do what they tell you. And I can tell you, in my own experience, having three daughters, that's not what I tell them. I tell them to question everything. And sometimes it's a little bit obnoxious, because then they question up, my wife and I. Uh, but they're, you know, they're... They're uh, children of a lawyer, so I would expect nothing less. Uh, but I want them to question those things. Um, yes, I want you to be respectful, but if an elder, if an adult says something to you that you have a problem with or a question about, come to talk to us about it. If the elder or, or uh, adult in the church does something that bothers you, come talk to us about it. And we've had some of our most fantastic uh, conversations in our family have been dinnertime conversations about our children expressing concerns, not really necessarily about this, but, you know, they go, to a, <clears throat> they go to a Christian school, and some of the things they learn at the Christian school, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm paying for this. Um, but, but they come home and we talk about it over dinner, and it's, it's really been, I think it's really been healthy. Is they feel comfortable discussing these types of things with us, um, and, and we are encouraging them to think on their own and to ask those questions. And it's no different when it comes to the issues like this. If somebody is saying something that's exploitive to them, uh, you know, I've, I, again, I, we have three daughters and I've, we've tried to work really hard to create, help them to become very independent thinkers and to question stuff. And when somebody's saying something to them that doesn't just feel real right about it, instead of trying to say, well, that's the adult, it must be right. Because that's what, oftentimes what we do in our churches. Just accept and obey and respect. And I think that's a mistake. Offenders love those environments because those are the environments where the children will never question. Those are the environments where the children will accept whatever that offender says or does because that offender happens to be uh, an adult. And then, you know, environments where there's authoritarian leadership. Um, you know, I, I just, I think that uh, authoritarian leadership, we could spend a little time defining it, uh, is so dangerous. I saw a lot of that in our investigations uh, on, ish, uh, on mission fields uh, with missionary organizations. That there were, you know, here you are in the middle of, you know, Senegal, West Africa, and uh, you have this leadership, this, this um, missionary, um, uh, missionary board leadership that's usually, usually five or six men, 
and they run the entire operation. They're not only the spiritual leaders, they become sort of almost the legal leader, leaders, of the, almost law enforcement. They, they have this immense amount of power that we've given them. And, and they, without, fa- without question, every time that we dealt with this, they usually fail in many ways. Um, they're right. We speak for God. I mean, anybody, some, anytime somebody tells you that they're speaking for God, run. Because <laughs> that is exploitive and it's abusive. But this is what happens in those types of environments. And you don't question. In those types of environments, this is what I've seen. And the two major dynamics I see in those environments is the devaluation of women and the devaluation of children. So when a woman comes forward, usually a woman won't come forward. But if a woman does come forward and express concern about what's going on with an adult and a child, uh, it's quickly discounted. Especially if, if the person that she is talking about happens to sit on this leadership. These are all buddies. They know each other. They're friends. They're good old boys. And women, well, they're sort of relegated over here. And so she's explaining or disclosing something. Uh, we don't, not going to give that too much merit. It's even worse for a child. In fact, most of the time in these types of environments, children don't come forward. But it's even worse for a child because a child has, has, very, little, has very little value in those types of environments. Um, and, and, I, uh, you know, and the people that say, you know what, I'm not going to allow you, your marginalization of my concern to make me quiet, so I'm going to keep speaking about it because I'm really concerned. They're often seen as sinful, troublemakers, bitter, and we quickly either try to get them back in line or we ostracize them. And I've told many who've been ostracized, consider that a gift from God. <laughs> but when you're on the mission field, not so easy. Um, I was, we were doing an investigation uh, not too many years ago about some abuse on a mission field in Bangladesh, and, and the primary perpetrator was uh, a missionary physician. And he was a, the most educated, the most charismatic, very uh, arrogant person on the mission field. Just about all the other missionaries were far less educated, uh, felt intimidated by this person. And this person was molesting missionary kids for a very long time. Um, and no, there were people that suspected, but they didn't say anything. And they kept quiet. And he was able to continue and continue and continue. And one of the, um, just give you this side story, which is, which is tragic, but, but something good's come out of it, I hope. Um, and that is, uh, you know, young 12-year-old girl who was a missionary kid ends up getting abused by this guy for a year and a half. And then, very charismatic. Um, she had, I mean, it's all started this, I don't mean to be graphic, but this is, this is how they work. She comes to him one day, she had, um, she had masturbated, and she comes to him one day and says, says I feel really guilty, because he had developed this or a close personal relationship with her, I feel really guilty because I did something I shouldn't have done. Well, what did you do? So she tells him. And he says, well, let me, let me tell you how men do it. And that's how it started. So she felt shame about her own behavior. He played up that shame by showing, well, let me how men do it. And now this was their secret. And it developed one thing to another to, to another. She finally discloses the abuse. To, she was actually over in the States for a summer. She discloses the abuse. It's a, it's a horrific story, but they, 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 and her parents were still in Bangladesh. So it's over in the summer with family members. Once she discloses the abuse, missionary agency takes her, two men from the missionary agency show up. 
They take this 13-year-old girl. They fly across the world to Bangladesh. Two men and this girl fly across to Bangladesh. When they get there, um, they, uh, they, make her, they make the parents confront the, the offender. They make the, the daughter confront the offender. He says he's sorry. He hugs her. He hugs mom and dad. And then they have her sign a statement that I call a confession where she says basically she takes responsibility. This 13-year-old takes responsibility for her participation and her role in this terrible sin. And she signs it. I'm meeting with this woman when she's 33 years old. And she's a train wreck. She's tried every type of drug you can think of. She's attempted suicide. She's a mess. And she told me one day, she says, you know, the abuse was bad. But every time I remember that document that, I'm, that I signed, I'm reminded how worthless I am. Now, that was done by people professing to, to know Jesus and professing to share the gospel to the broader world. Worst case is that this guy gets sent home by the missionary agency. You go, oh, good, he gets sent home. He gets sent home with a letter saying, I'm being sent home because of a moral indiscretion. What do you think when you hear that? Maybe adultery? Not abusing, sexually abusing children. And nobody else is told at home what he was sent home for. He is allowed for 20 years. He goes up and opens a family practice in Michigan and was a physician to children. So, now, the, the, the positive in all that is because people suspected the abuse and didn't do anything, I was really bothered by that. And I thought, you know what, if we were here in the States and you suspected abuse, you'd be required by law to report it. Most of you would. So I thought, man, why, if it's a crime to, it's a crime in the United States to sexually abuse a child, and it's a crime if you suspect and you don't report it. Under federal law, it's a crime if a U.S. citizen goes overseas and sexually abuses any child under the PROTECT Act. You can be prosecuted for it. However, I realized there's no corresponding mandated reporting law for it. So if I suspect, if I'm a missionary on the field and I suspect another missionary is abusing and I decide not to call because, you know, I'm under their power, oh well. I don't have to. So we developed, I uh, wrote an article last year, and, and we developed a proposal for a federal international mandated reporting law. And that's where Mike Reagan and I were in October um, going to, to Congress to see if we get some people interested in it. And it was awesome because we found a very conservative Republican and a very liberal Democrat who both loved it and have agreed to co-sponsor it. Uh, and then they, they hit me as they were agreeing to it a few weeks later. I thought, man, they always have these laws that are named like Megan's Law and, and whatever. There's various different names after the person who sort of uh, prompted the need for this law. So I called, uh, I called this, this survivor and I said, hey, um, would, you have, would you be okay if, um, if we named this law after you? And she was just silent. She's really? I was like, absolutely. You were the, you were the, the fuel that helped me to write this article and to, to create this, this proposal. So I contacted the congressional office and, and they were like, yeah, Absolutely. So uh, it's great. I mean, hopefully it'll get passed and it'll be called Kimberly's Law. Um, But something, and that was done, though, as a result of the fact that people on the mission field overseas were silent about this abuse. And more often than not, they were silent about it because they were intimidated by the authoritarian power that existed there. And so now they're going to realize I either have to submit to the, the, the power of these people or... I could face getting charged a felony. 
and I think that not only missionaries, but any, this, is, this will apply to everybody, um, will be prompted to make more calls of, suspect, of suspected abuse. And so hopefully we can reduce the number of Kimberleys in the world today uh, who are being abused simply by prompting people to, to call. And then um, one of the last ones is exploitation of needs. Um, how, how many churches can you think of that are not in need of help in volunteers? Okay, I didn't think so. Usually I don't get too many hands that go up. Um, yeah, I mean, we're always, we're always in need of people to sign up for stuff. I'm an elder at a church, and we're always looking for more people to, to help with certain aspects of ministry. And one of the aspects that we often need the most help with is youth and ch- ch- children's ministries. And so we're, we're very needful. Um, and offenders will, offenders will, uh, will take advantage of that. Um, they'll take advantage of the fact that, wow, this is a, this is a great environment. It's a great environment because it's filled with children and it has needs for us to help and serve those children. So I'm going to step forward and do that. Again, it's, it's great when people step forward. I'm not saying that just because somebody steps forward and wants to, to serve in the nursery or the child, child care or youth group, that they're a sex offender. But what does the church have in place to vet those people? And how do we, what do we have in place once we vetted them to hold them accountable? Uh, because oftentimes these offenders, as we've learned so far, they can be very deceptive. They'll get through the vetting process. But what do we do after that? Once they get vetted, do we go, okay, good. They're, they're good. Now let's look at somebody else. No, we need to, and we'll talk about it in the next session. We need to focus on that and create mechanisms within our churches that are creating these accountability uh, uh, measures, and everybody has to play a part in that. Leadership, adults, youth, children, everybody needs to be on the same page as, as we're, we're dealing with that. Um, and then Christian communities people in need. How many of you in here are needful, needy today? Okay. I think most of you are lying. I, I'm, let's face it. I mean... Doesn't the very gospel tell us we're in desperate need? <laughs> okay? That's what is drawn to the church. It's filled with needy people. And offenders like that. The offenders know they have, this, they have this antenna where they can go to an environment that's filled with needy people and find some of the most needful within that environment. Especially, well, they do that with both children and adults. Well, as we said earlier, they'll do that with an adult who's really needy, that has children that needs help. And they'll begin providing that help. And many, many times it'll take weeks or months where it's just completely innocent help. They're developing that for a purpose. They're taking advantage. They're exploiting that aspect of that community, which is, uh, which is need. And then the last one is trust. The exploitation of trust. Um, Christians, religious people tend to, to create very trusting environments. How about, um, you know, church family? You ever talk about church family? Welcome to our church family. I may, not know, I, I may not know two-thirds of the people in my church, but they're my family. Um, that's a little disturbing. Um, why? Well, because, and I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm just saying you've got to think about these things. A church family, um, just by calling it that or labeling it that, automatically means I sort of trust these people more than I would complete strangers. It's not a church strangers. It's church family. We do that for a reason. I saw that on the mission field when we've done our investigations over there where children literally, they arrive on the mission field, they don't know a single soul there. And they're told by the people in the mission field and, and by their parents, you are now to call everybody aunt such and such and uncle such and such. So all these kids are talking to complete strangers and they'll tell you later on, they're like, I, was, I didn't know what to do. These aren't my aunts and uncles. I was confused, but my parents are saying these are aunts and uncles. 
And what did that do? It, it created this familial environment where it developed this trust, a false trust, but it created a trust nevertheless. And so, but offenders will exploit that. They know that. How about dropping your child off at nursery? When we were years ago looking for a church in, in central Florida, uh, our oldest was a baby, and we would go to various churches. I hate looking for churches. It's awful. Uh, because it's so, you go to one church, and then usually the pastor's never there. They're like not there that week. Um, and then, and then you go, I've got to come back. But you're, you know, it's just, you know, we don't, that's a whole different subject. But anyway, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, you go take your, your child, <clears throat> And I give them to the nursery worker. I don't know any of these people. And I've just given them my child. I mean, would I walk into Walmart and walk up to the greeter and take Hannah and go, here, can you hold Hannah for the next hour while we shop? No. In fact, if I did that, you'd probably call, you know, some type of, you know, Department of Children and Family Services for doing it. But in a church context, we do that. Why? Because there's this, there's this trust. this sort of a natural trust. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying we need to be aware of that. And to be, use our common sense when we think about that. Uh, because offenders know that. As we, sa- as we saw earlier, uh, the offender talked about the fact that churches are filled with trusting people. But also children are taught to trust in God. Child, clergy and adults should be trusted since they are God's representatives on earth. This is a quote from a friend of mine, Krista Brown. She wrote a book called This Little Light. It's a very, um, it's a very powerful book of, of her journey of being sexually abused by her youth pastor, and then years later as an adult, um, realizing what it really was and trying to do something about it and the church's, the church's response. And it's, it's, you know, it's not good. But <clears throat> she remembers, she goes, Eddie, the pastor, always said that God had chosen me for something special. I guess I really wanted to believe that. Doesn't every kid want to think they're special? Besides, who was I to question a man of God? It wasn't my place. My role was to be submissive. Now, she was 15 when this was going on. She just didn't question. She was told to trust this person. Why? Because uh, he's telling her to trust God. He's the, he's the youth pastor. Um, and so she just trusted. Uh, I can tell you there's a great, it's not great, it's tragic, but there was a, a memorandum filed by the federal government, the, 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 uh, the um, U.S. Attorney's Office, a few years ago when it uh, charged a well-known, very fundamentalist, a well-known fundamentalist pastor in Indiana named Jack Scapp. Jack Scapp was, um, uh, Hiles Anderson College was, is connected with Jack Scapp's school. Now, anybody ever heard of that school? Okay, that, that's probably good. Um, this is the world of, like, this, this is the world that makes um, Bob Jones look a little bit liberal, okay? Jack Hiles was very well known years ago. He's dead now. Very, you know, about as fundamentalist as you get. Well, Jack Scapp, I mean, I probably should play you some, maybe I should mail do that later, play you a video of Jack Scapp. I mean, you'll be like, oh my goodness, and you'll, you'll appreciate your pastors that much more. But Jack Scapp got caught a few years ago uh, with uh, having sex with a 16-year-old in his church. Um, and what's so powerful is this memorandum by the U.S. Attorney's Office that, that includes emails and texts and conversations uh, that Scapp had with the 16-year-old, uh, includes interviews they did with the 16-year-old that talked about what his behaviors were all about. And it was all about this, trust and power. He took power and trust already in a fundamentalist environment where it's already, you know, super authoritarian, and he exploited it in ways that were just absolutely reprehensible. And for a, such a long time, this, this, this uh, 15-year-old child... Um, 
this is Jack Scapp. He's like the He's like the, the main guy. I mean, wow, he's paying attention to me and, and he's using his authority and his power over me. And, and it's really, it, it really opens your eyes to how offenders, especially in the church, especially leaders in the church, exploit all of these, uh, these, these issues that I've talked about um, and probably distort, maybe distort is a better word, uh, in order to access and abuse and silence and ultimately destroy this child. Um, and fortunately, he got caught, and fortunately, he's sitting in federal prison right now. Uh, but so many of them don't get caught. Um, so that's, that's, that's all for now. What, any questions? That just gives you a—oh, here's a, here's, a, here's a resource. I don't necessarily recommend this resource for everybody. Um, if you're a survivor of abuse, I would say make sure you check with somebody if you have a therapist or, or a confidant whether you're not, this, is, this is a good resource for you to read. But, but a resource that I think is really, really helpful is a book called Predators by Dr. Anna Salter. She's the one that did this interview. Uh, if every pastor, I really mean this, if every pastor in this country read the book Predators, I think churches would be a safer place. As we develop, and I'll talk to you a little bit later about a certification program that Grace is developing, one of the requirements is that the pastor of the church read this book. Um, and it's you know, sort of it's called Predators, and as a, the subtitle is even worse. And so, like, you don't want to read it in the plane because people are like, "What in the world?" Oh, it's a, you know. But, but it's it's I, it's a required reading for my course, and uh, without exception, it's been the reading that my students have said has, has informed them the most about offenders. Lots of my material that I have, a lot of the quotes that I have uh, obtained have come from that book. Uh, that's a really, really helpful resource in trying to understand. She's a clinical psychologist, Harvard trained, who has spent the last 25 to 30 years focused exclusively on offenders and understanding them. I mean, she's hard on them. I mean, she's, she's not, you know, you, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, you know, put one over on Dr. Salter. But, but she has done this research and, and has done very well with this research. I mean, it's, it's legitimate research, but she's coupled the research with anecdotal interviews and, and getting the information actually from offenders and saying, what can we learn from them in order to apply in our own communities in order to make our children safer? Any other any questions? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't, I don't think we have really good figures to date on that. Um, I think men are certainly, you know, probably easily two-thirds of, of most offenders are, are men. Um, however, um, we're seeing, I have a friend of mine that, uh, that runs the uh, ICAC unit in, our, in our, uh, the southern part of Virginia. It's the Internet Crimes Against Children. And what they'll tell you is that uh, the, the rate or rise of female offenders is, is staggering. Both female offenders and child offenders, they'll tell you. Those are the two categories. They say what's really out of control today, which is so tragic, are uh, kids in middle school and high school uh, who are you know, taking pictures of themselves and sending them to boyfriends, and then boyfriends taking them and, and spreading them all around the school. Um, it's not just pictures of themselves. He says, I, I guess I won't even go into details, but young girls like putting things up in their body and taking pictures and sending, it's almost like the worse you can get, the more, uh, the more tension you'll get. And he says, they're handling it, which, you know, it's interesting because that's, that's the transmission of child pornography. So we'll, we'll charge both, the, both kids. Now we'll go to the, the young, <clears throat> we'll go to the female parents and talk to them and, and, you know, try to get her help. Uh, but the, but the, 
but the one who's receiving it. And anybody else in that school who's receiving these pictures, he goes, you know, we'll let the prosecutor decide what they actually do with the cases, but we charge them. He goes, and it's unbelievable. He goes, we spend two-thirds of our time now dealing with that issue. And that's just frightening to me. But the worst thing about it is while they're dealing with that issue, which is really, really serious, and it says a lot about our, our, our children. I, mean, I, I grieve for those young ladies. I have three daughters of myself. I grieve for a young lady that feels like she has to stick something up her body and take a picture and send it to somebody in order to feel relevant and loved. I mean, that should make us weep. But, and, and where is that child when they're 18 or 25? Um, but, but at the same time, when we're focusing on this, what we're doing is we're taking resources away from also focusing on the adult offenders who are online. Um, so I think what we're seeing is a, a dramatic rise. One of the things that frustrates me, I'm going to show you all a video in the next section of a female offender, but one of the, one of the things that is frustrating oftentimes with female offenders is that there's still a double standard uh, in how we, uh, how we view them, how we treat them, the consequences for their actions. Uh, I still run into men who, like, what's the big deal that that teacher was sleeping with that 14-year-old in their school? I mean, I, when I was 14-year-old, I would, I would love that. And I'm thinking, you know what? Um, first of all, it's ridiculous. Second of all, I've talked to those 14-year-olds who are now 25 or 26, and most of them, not all, most of them will tell you that that wasn't so cool and the impact that that had on their life later on. Um, and so we need, to be tr- we need to be focusing and treating female offenders much more uh, differently than we are today and actually much more similar to how we treat male offenders. And I think we're seeing a little bit of progress with regard to that. I don't know if judges just somehow like feel sorry for female offenders. I just don't know. I mean, if you had a female, if you have a 25-year-old female offender um, having sexual contact with a 14 or 13-year-old um, boy, and then say if you had a 25 or 26-year-old male offender having sexual contact with a 14, uh, 13 or 14-year-old girl, oftentimes you get very different reactions from people uh, when you ask about those. They'll be really upset at the male offender, the female offender, there tends to be a little bit more like, well, you know, they start making excuses. Part of that is educating um, our, our communities about the dangers of all offenders. <laughs> and, and that male offenders don't just offend females, they offend males. And here's another misnomer that we, a lot of times in the Christian community uh, that we do, that we get, and that is that gay people are much more likely to sexually offend children. That's just not true. In fact, if you understand the term and definition of, of a pedophile, I prosecuted pedophiles, men who were sexually abusing boys, but who were not gay. And you go, well, how does it even make sense? Well, th- th- that's what, right, that's very complex. But when we as Christians, oftentimes, and I, I'll get on a soapbox, so I try not to, but I, sometimes I get really frustrated that the only time I hear from conservative Christian community about child sexual abuse and child abuse is when... Not because they're concerned about a child, but it's in, oftentimes it's in an effort to promote an agenda, a political agenda related to the gay and lesbian community. And that just irritates me. Because I'm like, well, you're exploiting children. <laughs> a, you're not even giving truthful information, but you're exploiting children for a political purpose. Why can't you just be upset about the fact that children are being sexually abused? I don't care if the person, the offender is gay, not gay. I don't, it doesn't matter to me that the child is being sexually abused. Where is the Christian community then? when it has nothing to do with a, an ulterior political motive. Uh, but anyway, that has nothing related to your question you asked, and I just threw it out and probably irritated a bunch of people. Um, any other questions? We'll take a... Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I think one of the, maybe the question is, the bigger question is why, why do people sexually abuse children? Because um, we knew that. And I, I'll tell you, I was at a meeting with, with some 
sort of top experts in the, in the country, and I was not, I don't think I was one of them, I was just at the meeting, and, and, and Dr. Salter was speaking, and one of her first questions she asked is, why do, why do people sexually abuse children? And these are some of the top experts, and, and no hands went up, and so finally I, and she called him and I said, we don't know. And she goes, exactly, we don't, if, if we knew, we'd be able to do something much more about it. Um, now, I will say this. The best way we can learn is to understand, just like we've been talking here today, uh, common behavioral patterns. doesn't mean that they are, but if we can at least become acquainted with sort of, sort of not only behavioral patterns, but how lots of them, not all of them, think, uh, we can create environments that are safer for our children. But you also raise an interesting issue that I think is also important to, 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 to at least disclose, and that is um, just because you've been sexually abused does not mean you become an abuser. I've talked to victims, and the victims have emailed me petrified that, oh my goodness, somebody told me because I was sexually abused that I'm going to become a perpetrator. That's just not true. The research does not support that at all. What the research does say is this. Out of all the victims, if you look at perpetrators, most perpetrators, not all, but most perpetrators have been sexually abused as children. Most victims have not. Most victims do not become perpetrators. So out of the whole category of victims, you have this subcategory of perpetrators, and most of, a lot of perpetrators have become victims. Um, we're victimized, excuse me. So that's really important for us to communicate, especially to uh, abuse survivors, because so many of them live in fear that they're going to become perpetrators. And we have to communicate that and educate our churches. Like I said earlier, when you learn about a, a person who's been sexually abused or a male who's been sexually abused, when you automatically go, when your immediate response is, oh my goodness, he's probably a sex offender. That's just, it's just, again, you're, you're basing that decision on something that's, that's maybe anecdotal, but it's certainly not on the research. Um, that, but what we can tell you is that a lot of sex offenders were victimized as children. But just because you're victimized as a child certainly does not mean, in fact, there's strong likelihood you'll never become a perpetrator. Does that make sense? Okay. Let, yes. No, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's people... Uh, Oftentimes, our natural reaction to hearing this is to take extremes. So we either go, I'm just not going to believe what you're saying, and we're going to keep doing what we're doing, or it's, oh my goodness, we've got to stop everything we're doing. We're going to have to completely separate this. I mean, it's, it's extremes. And, and the more I've done this type of work, the more I realize that neither of those are good answers. The best answer is training, equipping the church, everybody in the church, from the youngest of children to the oldest of people, about this issue. And train and equip them to understand what to be looking for, what to be able to, to, to do when you do see something that's concerning. Um, have certain policies in place, yes, that sort of basic boundaries that we need to, to, to put in place, which makes sense. But then, in addition to that, if everybody is equipped, I look at it like a, as, a, as a toolbox. Your church needs to have the right tools in your toolbox. I think most churches may have a toolbox, but they don't got a tool in there. Or if they do have a tool, they're trying to use a screwdriver to, to hammer a nail. And so one of the things about this type of gathering is to say, hey, we want to equip you all to have toolboxes. Church have a toolbox, but not just a toolbox, but with the right tools in the box. And so part of the right tools in that box is being educated and equipped to understand this in a way that's more than just an inch deep. Because the more everybody is aware and understand it, the more tools you have in your box and the more you're going to be able to say, listen, yes, we want this intergenerational relationships. Those are good. Now, we're going to create some boundaries. Okay, one tool is boundaries. We're going to create some boundaries. But in addition to boundaries, 
we're going to have mechanisms put in place that, that will very likely identify concerning behaviors. And that we are going to have people, everybody's going to know about this and, and be constant. It's a constant conversation. When I leave here tomorrow, I don't want you all to say, okay, good, we got, we got uh, child protection training off the list. Let's move on. I really pray that that's not the response. This has to be part, this has to become part of the DNA of your churches. And it has to always be on the radar screen. And so, and, and also training, part of that training is how do we train those who people come to to express concern? How are they going to respond? Do they have the tool in the toolbox in, in responding well? Because so oftentimes, I, do, I have said before, people will say something to somebody in leadership or, or somebody in the church, and they'll get quickly dismissed. Like, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, we've got to create a, give you all a tool that says, no, we want to welcome those types of those types of concerns. And not only are we going to welcome them, we're going to encourage you to communicate those. And then we're going to have a process set in place on how do we respond when you do disclose this. Uh, okay, because you can welcome it, but not do anything about it. But we're going to welcome it and do something. If everybody is working together actively, and this literally becomes part of the DNA of your churches, then you can do that. And I think you can do it well and not live in perpetual fear that, oh my goodness, uh, but if you haven't done this, and this doesn't become the DNA of your church, then you're right. That it is something to be worried about, um, because offenders will take advantage of that. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's take a um, let's take a like a 15 minute break. Is that good? Like like 10:35. Uh, come back, and then we'll do a um, we'll do the, the second presentation the session. I want to start off the second presentation though with a video, um, and then have a brief discussion about it. <laughs>